0: A nation changed with Kurt Fernley is sponsored by HireUp, a registered NDIS service provider. HireUp is Australia's leading online platform where people with disability can find, hire and manage their own support workers. To find out more, head to That's hireup.com.au. That's H I R E U P.com.au. Honestly, I haven't had lunch yet. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not uh, that much of an eater. I only tend to eat when I'm really hungry.
1: I had cheese puffs.
2: Cheese
1: puffs? <laughs> yes. Yeah, they were in the car and they were, they were delicious. I <laughs> love them. But they're not very good for you. No. I'm no, sitting with what, Scott what Taylor in them? his kitchen. Oh, they're like, um, like cheesels. I don't know. If cheese could cry, They're the, the tears of cheese puffed up. That actually you met Scott good. in the second episode. <laughs>
0: Hi, my name's Scott Taylor. I'm originally from Newcastle, but have been living in Sydney now for 18 months.
1: Scott lives on one of the busiest streets in the Sydney CBD, but you wouldn't know it. His apartment is quiet and cosy. Scott lives by himself, which is a fairly new thing, and it's something that he's really grown to love.
0: Making that move from Newcastle to Sydney, it was a tough move. I was literally leaving my comfortable Rural life, kind of out in the sticks where it was very quiet and I was moving right into the big smoke, right into the city.
1: What did your family think about that?
0: It was a feeling very much of worry, concern. Oh my God, how's he going to do this? Is he going to manage? Is he going to be okay?
1: Scott uses a power wheelchair. Living on his own in a city more than two hours from where he grew up, it isn't something he'd ever really imagined for himself.
0: Look, honestly, I just thought that life for me was just going to be very routine, very monotonous. It was one where my family had to make a lot of sacrifices, not just physically and emotionally, but definitely financially. I didn't really know where my life was going to head or what turn it was going to take, so I just thought, well, what's the point of setting goals when there's not really nothing to strive for? and to look at where I am now, and what's happened, it really flipped my world on its head. The NDIS has truly opened up a whole new world for me, and it's a world that I never even knew would exist.
1: I'm Kurt Fernley, and this is A Nation Changed, a four part series about the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Today, the NDIS supports more than 400,000 Australians with disabilities, many receiving this type of support for the very first time. But it hasn't always been this way. An independent report published in 2011 ranked Australia last out of 27 OECD countries when it came to poverty risk for people with disability. But things, they are improving. Scott says the choice and control that come with the NDIS has allowed him to forge a future for himself.
0: For me to be able to have that choice and control, is, yeah, it's it's so important to me, it's integral. It was a moment where I, probably for one of the first times, I really felt myself as an equal.
1: Scott's story is one that speaks to the success of the NDIS, but it's not the reality for everyone. Many Australians with disabilities continue to face significant hurdles when accessing NDIS support, some facing flat-out rejection. In this episode, we hear different stories from people relying on the NDIS. You'll learn about what it takes to get on the scheme, where the process is working, where it isn't, and why one of the greatest social reforms in Australia's history is leaving many behind. There are a bunch of boxes that you have to tick to be approved for the NDIS. You need to be between 7 and 65 years old, Australian resident, and have a permanent or significant disability. The first step is to contact the National Disability Insurance Agency, the NDIA. If you're somebody who receives support under the old state-based system, the NDIA may contact you first. Then you get connected with your local area coordinator, or LAC, who either becomes your NDIS planner or sets you up with one. From there, you set up a planning meeting to talk about your situation your support needs and also your... goals for the future. Yeah, it's a pretty complicated process. Scott remembers there was a lot he needed to prepare before he went into that
0: first meeting. The process entering into the scheme. There was a lot of paperwork, doctor's notes, assessments from physiotherapists, from occupational therapists to basically outline the nature of my disability and obviously the support that I would require.
1: In his first meeting, Scott talked about what support he was after.
0: Just services like respite care and equipment-wise and a lot of physiotherapy sessions and occupational therapy sessions... They were obviously the things that were really difficult for me to really access on a consistent, regular basis, which for someone like me with my disability, I need that kind of consistent and regular um, attention.
1: Once the first meeting's over and the paperwork is in, Joe Berry, an NDIS participant from Sydney, who we spoke to in our first episode, says the next step is just to wait.
2: You wait and hope and wait and wait. There's a lot of waiting. It's just quite frustrating, especially if you're waiting on something that's actually an impactful thing in your life.
1: After waiting and waiting, Joe was finally approved. So was Scott.
0: It's certainly a period now that I look back on and go, well, even though it did take that little bit of time to uh, put that effort in, it's certainly proven to be more than worthwhile.
1: Has the NDIS helped you? Have you got those goals?
0: I have got those goals and more. If you'd spoken to anybody about growing up and sort of what I wanted to do then then that one goal was always to work for one of the massive companies that I now work for.
1: Scott, he works at Sydney's Apple store.
0: I live pretty much on my own. I have a team of people that come in and help me for a few hours, a few days a week, but apart from that I'm pretty much living on my own. I do my own thing, I go to work, I come home, I hang out with workmates, I go down to Darling Harbour, Circular Quay. The NDIS has transformed my life completely.
1: But it hasn't been so easy for other Australians living with a disability.
3: Oh, well, for breakfast I had toast with strawberry jam on it. Very yummy. And then for lunch um, I picked out and had a pie.
1: This is Trish Jackson.
3: Hi, I'm Trish Jackson and uh, I am a thalidomide survivor.
1: Trish is an artist and photographer from the Moreton Bay region in Queensland.
3: So for those that don't know what thalidomide is, it was a drug that was around in the late 1950s, early 60s. And it was commonly used for morning sickness. Uh, Unfortunately, the tablet was never properly researched or tested and uh, it caused severe birth deformities for those babies.
1: Thalidomide prevented Trisha's arms from growing, so instead she uses her feet for pretty much everything, to paint, take photos and to move around on her scooter.
3: I drive it with my feet. There aren't many around that have little arms like myself.
1: When Trish first heard about the NDIS, she loved the idea.
3: From what I read on paper, it sounded absolutely fabulous for all disabled people and um, for all of those people that hadn't had funding before. You know, it was a great opportunity for them to, to thrive and to get things that they hadn't got before.
1: But getting on the scheme was a different story. Trish had previously received support through Disability Services, the state system in Queensland. When the NDIS started, Her name was given to the NDIA.
3: And I got a letter probably nine months prior to that first meeting saying that I was on the waiting list and I would be contacted soon.
1: After waiting for nine months, Trish finally got a call to set up her first planning meeting. But it didn't go the way that she'd hoped.
3: Gosh, I got rung up on a Friday and I was told to be at a NDIS office on a Wednesday morning at a certain time. And uh, there was no, oh, I can't do that. Oh, I've got to change it. It was just be there or you'll miss out basically. Um, and when I went there, the lady said, well, what would you like? And I said, well, you know, I really would like doors that are self-opening because I use my mouth to hold my key and put the key in the door lock, and I would like to stop that. And um, she just looked at me and said, oh, you'd have to be assessed as to why you would need something like that. Um, the fact I've got no arms and how I told her I did it made no difference. And, uh, yeah, it the first meeting didn't go well.
1: After her first meeting, there was more waiting.
3: Just wait and there would be a plan sent out to me. And that was it. And that was my plan for the year. And that was it. I couldn't change it, couldn't challenge it. It just said uh, my husband was my carer and he would do everything for me. I liked to garden, I think, and do photography. And I think that was about it. And that that was all she wrote as my goals. My goals were to have an accessible house, to have an assistance dog, to have home modifications, lots of things like that. But, yeah, it just wasn't written in my plan.
1: Trish pushed back against her planner to get the self-opening doors she'd asked for. But making any sort of change to your plan can be incredibly difficult. It was this way for Joe too.
2: The review system is probably my biggest frustration with it all. So you apply, you say this is not right. Even if it's a simple thing like changing a tick box, you've got to go through a whole review You can call as many times as you need, but it's not, you're not necessarily going to get anywhere. And I applied for some foot orthotics and they got approved, but they wrote it in the plan wrong. And I ended up taking nearly 18 months for that whole process to be complete. And when you're dislocating your ankle as a result of it, it's quite frustrating
1: The NDIS responded to Trish's request for self-opening doors. They said before they would sign off, she would have to find an occupational therapist. The OT would assess whether or not they were even necessary for her situation. Trish, when hearing this, it was tough, but not as tough as finding an OT to make the approval.
3: Well, I've had OTs all my life and one OT told me that I was extremely lazy because I didn't hang my washing on the line. My arms don't even reach my ears, so I'm not quite sure how I was supposed to get the washing on the clothesline, but she just kept telling me I was extremely lazy. That's the kind of attitude I get.
1: After a long search, Trish found an OT.
3: All I wanted was a door that I could push buttons on it and it would open and let me in. And it was just a nightmare from day one, basically. The builder that was approved for me, he just did absolutely awful work. It was poor quality. He overcharged. And so when I rang NDIS and I said, hey, this door isn't very good. It's not suiting my needs. It's dangerous because it nearly knocked me over because of the way it opened. They basically weren't interested at all. I went to the Queensland building and commission or whatever and spoke to them. And once they got involved, NDIS changed their tune. And then they had to pay another $10,000 to get the workmanship fixed. It was awful. The stress it caused me was just unbelievable. It was, yeah, I've never felt stressed like that before. It was just horrible. I can honestly say that NDIS has broken my spirit.
4: There are many kind of arbitrary boundaries that sit around the, the NDIS and the way of thinking about individuals within the scheme that don't really make sense if you hold them up to the cold light of day.
1: Jordan Steele-John is a Senator for the Australian Greens. He's also the only person with a disability in the entire Parliament. He's also in the process of applying for the NDIS himself.
4: The NDIS fully phased into my area in 20... Ooh, I'm testing my memory now. 2018, I believe it was. Previous to that, I've had wheelchairs, I've had physio, da, 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 you know, uh, I've had my Hogwartian style letter and my initial conversation with somebody that was then going to Passed me on to the the secondary team, but uh, so far I've already picked up worrying signs. The most serious of which was the fact that they had no information on me. So they had my name and my email, and that was it. Like they didn't know where I lived, and they most worryingly had no understanding of any of the previous services or equipment that I've had throughout my life. And when I said that I was Part of the former cap funding system that existed here in WA. The response of the person that I spoke to was, "What's the cap system?" To which I go, "Oh, oh dear, uh, this is a this is a problem."
1: Senator Steele John says his disability support information not being transferred over to the NDIS is just one in a series of problems he believes there are three key issues holding the NDIS back from where it needs to be. The first are staffing caps placed on the NDIA. We talked about these in episode two.
4: The Productivity Commission in 2009 said that the scheme would need at least ten thousand employees. It currently has, give or take, 4,500-odd, and the difference is made up by an outsourced workforce. So it's an unnecessary additional bureaucratic layer, which actually means that people can never talk to the person or find it very difficult to talk to the person, uh, that it can actually make a decision. And it means that the agency isn't able to develop and retain the institutional knowledge that is needed to actually learn as it solves problems. It also means that the agency isn't able to take the time to develop the relationships with community that is needed to run a scheme like the NDIS.
1: Trish also experienced this. Her frustration with NDIS staff only became worse when she requested financial support for her mobility scooter. Trish says what should have been a simple solution turned into an incredibly stressful process.
3: Now I had already bought a scooter and had modified it to suit me because I drive it with my feet. But this scooter I had only had really tiny, tiny wheels, so it was only good on very flat surfaces. Nobody would modify a scooter. And I told NDIs that nobody would modify it. And they said, well, I had to go and get letters from scooter shops to say that they won't modify it. So I went round with my husband. He took me around and I think we went to about five scooter shops in the area got letters to say that they won't modify scooters. So I handed that documentation into NDIS and they said that that wasn't good enough. I had to get my OT to get the same letters, which just blew my head. Like, why? What? Because I got the letters, why Why weren't they good enough?
1: With no other options locally, Trish started looking for a scooter online.
3: I found this scooter in Denmark that already comes modified to put the uh, control wherever you like on the machine. So it comes with it on the floor. So perfect for me. NDI said, no, we don't import stuff. The company said that they were appointing an Australian distributor. I went down to the scooter shop, which was in Wagga Wagga, and I'm in Queensland. I went down and I test drove it. It was absolutely beautiful, fitted me like a glove, perfect thing I've ever, ever had. Went back... OT saw me ride it, she said it's perfect, sent all the paperwork into NDIS, NDIS said that it was too expensive for a scooter. They wanted to pay an extra $7,000 on an electric wheelchair that I wouldn't be able to use instead of paying that much for a scooter that I could use. It just didn't make sense. Like, why pay an extra seven grand for something that I wouldn't be able to use? It's really funny. Everyone just assumes that I get everything I want or everybody gets everything they want under NDIS. They don't realise that we have to fight and we have to battle and we have to get report after report after report and then get rejected. And then you have to start again. People's perception is that we just get everything handed to us on a platter, and that's not how it works. They don't understand the bureaucracy of trying to get things from NDIS.
1: Jordan Stilljohn, the Green Senator, also trying to get on the NDIS, says another major roadblock is a systems issue.
4: The IT system that the agency uh, uses is not really fit for purpose, and it has never been fit for purpose. But it's also created ridiculous situations where the system requires you record a primary and secondary disability. Now, there's no such thing as a primary and a secondary disability. If I'm disabled, but I'm also blind, you tell me which one is my primary disability.
1: Greg Bruce, an NDIS participant from the Hunter region in New South Wales, found the online system frustrating too.
5: Greg is vision impaired and believes the system wasn't designed with him in mind. I think initially it had issues with being accessible for people that were visually impaired. Software we had was not reading the information fully. There was stuff put up as an image file that had text on it. And of course our screen reading software doesn't read what's on an image. So it made it really hard. Jordan Steele-John says this goes against the underlying
1: principles of the NDIS.
4: I think it should be a scheme that exists for all disabled people, that we should work to expand the scope as much as possible. Underpinning all of this, we have a cultural challenge. The leadership of the agency, a vast majority of the leadership of the agency, and most certainly the minister and, and many members of the board, don't understand what disability is, all of these years later, so far into this scheme. When I first started,
6: which is almost a year ago now, you know, being quite honest about it, I didn't have great experience in the disability sector itself. I had a lot of other important experience, I hope, and capabilities, but not directly in the disability sector. So, Martin
1: Hoffman is the current CEO of the National Disability Insurance Agency.
6: Certainly one of my priorities was to learn, uh, meet people, talk and really get a deep sense of what the underpinning philosophy or intention of the scheme was. The focus has to move to how do we improve the experience and how do we improve the use of plans to achieve the outcomes, the goals, the aspirations of people.
1: In December 2019, when Martin was one month into the job, an independent review of the NDIS was released. The Tune Review, conducted by retired public servant, David Tune, is the most significant review into the performance of the NDIS so far. One major finding was that participants felt NDIA staff failed to grasp what it was like to live with the disability.
6: We make about 10,000 decisions every week, be it for access or for planning, or for reviews, or appeals, or whatever—about ten thousand a week—and that's being done across 150 different offices, and about five thousand people directly involved in that sort of process. Many, many of our staff, in fact, more than any other government agency, identify themselves as people with disability. But gee, as I said, you know, ten thousand decisions every week, and even more interactions. Does every one of those go as sympathetically and as knowledgeably as you might want in the ideal? No, probably not.
1: Greg Bruce from The Hunter says his first experience with the NDIA and his local
5: area coordinator, or LAC, weren't good. My first LAC, that's where I felt things fell down, which made me feel like I was a child. But when he changed to a different LAC, things were much better. My current LAC, the way she puts stuff is incredible. is very supportive, understands, and I think it comes from the background the LACs have. The LAC hasn't dealt with somebody with your disability. They don't understand. And I think I'm lucky with my current LAC. She had previously had some dealing with people with vision impairment, so she had a better understanding of what we're up against in life. Jo Berry says she's also been lucky with her
1: LACs.
2: I've been fairly fortunate in terms of having local area coordinators that are generally fairly good, but I have had people that have had local area coordinators that have really missed the point. Because what it is is a bit of Chinese whispers. If you tell someone something and then they tell the next person something but they've kind of misunderstood something or or missed something out, then you then don't get it. Whereas if you're speaking directly with someone, you're much less likely to have those little errors.
1: NDIA boss Martin Hoffman says the agency continues to invest in training for their staff.
6: Particularly of our frontline staff on disability types and particular cohorts, be it Indigenous, be it culturally and linguistically diverse to try and give people that empathy and understanding.
1: What is the training? There's a
6: range of modules about how to do the job, how the planning system works, what does reasonable necessary supports mean. So there's a, a range of structured training programs at the start and refreshers. At the end, there is a point that we have to make decisions about funding and those funding decisions impact on people's lives. And so there can be disagreement. The view is sometimes, well, we didn't understand the person well enough. That might be the case. The great thing and the hard thing is this scheme is attempting to be individualized and personalized. And that's why it has a subjective test for funding, which is a reasonable and necessary support, rather than a set of objective, hard rules about. If you've got this, you get that. And I completely get why some people would say, well, it's because you don't understand me well enough. That may well be true in some times. In other times, the agency has to make a decision consistent with the act and consistent with the evidence.
1: Senator Jordan Steele-John says, while this is a step in the right direction, he's not sure it's enough.
4: There's all the old stories of people saying, oh, excuse me, just want to clarify, you're saying uh, Down syndrome is a permanent disability, or you're an amputee—is that a permanent condition? Like uh, those are—they uh, retained a mythic status within the disability community. Disabled people's lives, our lives are complicated. We are subject to some of the most entrenched forms of discrimination that still exists in our society. We're constantly struggling against either the result of that discrimination or other things happening in our diverse human lives. To be able to make something like this work, particularly in the context where our dominant experience with previous service provision has been systemic failure, there is not the demonstrated understanding of a social model of disability, of the idea that somebody's barriers, the discrimination that they face, comes from society rather than being a natural byproduct of their impairment and difference. That is where we are now. That is where we are as a disability community.
1: The David Tune review into the NDIS made 29 recommendations. In August, the federal government released its official response, and the Minister for the NDIS, Stuart Robert, outlined the government's next steps to get the scheme back on track. One step is something called the NDIS participant service guarantee.
6: Yeah, so this was a commitment that uh, the government made at the last election. and I think it's you know, supported by both sides of politics and it was really saying, look, things were just taking too long. It would benefit by having some defined time standards for what people could expect.
1: The goal of the guarantee is to reduce the amount of time people wait at each stage of receiving NDIS support. This includes scheduling a first planning meeting, having their plans approved and cutting time spent on the review process. The aim was to have this guarantee in law by July 1st this year. But Martin Hoffman, CEO of the NDIA, says because of the coronavirus pandemic, it's been delayed. There have been other announcements following the TUNE review, one which we'll talk about more in our next and final episode. As you'll hear, it's causing some serious concern in the disability community.
4: A lot of people are quite worried that it's, it's a way
2: of weeding people out of the scheme. There's a lot of concern about what this means for people in all sorts of situations. And why, why take it out when you finally built relationships with therapists that know you?
1: And you'll hear how an ongoing Royal Commission is shining a bright light on how deep the problems in the disability sector go.
2: I would be lying if I said that
4: this hasn't affected me at all. 1,300 people die before they get the support they need, not our problem. And he, mm, wow, that is so profoundly inappropriate and unacceptable. This is my community. This is our community.
1: A Nation Change is hosted by me, Kurt Fernley. Our lead producer is Jake Morkel. Jasmine Mee-Lee is our assistant producer. Jess Binneth is executive producer of the series. This podcast is a collaboration between Higher Up Australia and Audiocraft. Subscribe to A Nation Changed wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or listen to episodes individually at higherup.com.au forward slash a nation changed. There are transcripts too at the same address, higherup.com.au forward slash a nation changed.